You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. Turn to John chapter 14, if you don't mind. John chapter 14, and uh, we'll pick it up in verse 8. While you're finding your place, I want to say thank you to all those who came and served down on the square yesterday. Um, it was a blessing to look out and see all the blue shirts out there and all the conversations that you were having with folks who uh, came and was part of that. And uh, We had, um, had a couple of folks, at least two, maybe more, that put their faith in Jesus as a result yesterday, so we'll be following up with them. And I've got a stack of cards in my office up there of, of folks who filled out the cards, who, who want to follow up, who have prayer requests. So um, just thank God for the fruit that was part of what you did yesterday. And I'm just very thankful for you and for your willingness to take part of a, a Saturday to be with us. John chapter 14, verse 8. I want to say welcome to each of you and those that are watching online this morning. We're glad you're with us. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, we pause now to ask. But before we do, we want your name to be honored and glorified. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done in our lives. And Father, you have invited us to seek and to ask and to knock. You have invited us to express the desires of our heart. And Lord, you made a promise to us right here in your word that, that you would hear and you would answer. But Lord, far too often we... We come to you with our ideas, our desires that have no connection to your will for our life, have no connection to your word. And Lord, because you're a good father, oftentimes you say no to the things that we think are best, but that you know are actually harmful. So Lord, don't let us approach this text this morning with the idea that this is some kind of magical prayer that fills up our bank accounts with money and makes all of our problems go away. But Lord, that we would approach you with reverence, with honor, that we would approach you knowing that you know what's best for us far more than we know about ourselves. And that, Father, that everything that we do in our life as your followers, as your people, that would bring glory and honor to you, that we would never disparage your name, that we would never, that we would never bring anything upon your name or your movement or your cause, anything that would bring shame or reproach. So, Father, give us the very best you have. And sometimes, Father, that best that you have doesn't always line up with what we think is best. Father, help us to see the difference and help us to accept your will and your purpose. Guide us in your word this morning. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable unto you. And may it bring glory to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The video you just watched was a funeral, obviously. And in that box that they were placing into the floor was the ashes of a scientist. I'm not going to tell you who that is to for just for a few more moments. But that was Westminster Abbey. Now, Westminster Abbey is a, a cathedral. It's a, uh, it's a cathedral where a lot of famous people have been laid to rest. And I've always wanted to go tour not only Westminster Abbey, but also Westminster Cathedral. You have the cathedral, which is a Roman Catholic cathedral. And you have Westminster Abbey, which is uh, actually a, um, it's an Anglican uh, building. And, and that's what happens there. Worship services happen. There are a lot of famous people 
Their ashes have been placed in the floor. Their, their bodies are laying in a, in a coffin inside of that place, a very ornate. There's kings and queens and uh, people who contributed to science and people who contributed to the arts. And you can walk through that building and, and see those famous people laid to rest there. The funeral that you watched, I don't know if you could hear the audio really well, but typical of what you would find in a, in a worship service where they are not only honoring the person's memory, but honoring God. And if you heard, they were, as they were placing the, the box of ashes into the floor and placing the flowers, you could hear the priest of the Anglican church say, we commit your ashes back to the earth awaiting the resurrection of Jesus talking about what the the Bible talks about, that there will be a day when those in Christ will be resurrected from the dead with brand new bodies, and this priest is speaking those words over this person who had passed away. Not only that, if you watch the entire service, there there are hymns that are sung. If you heard him pray, you heard him pray in Jesus' name and pray to God the Father. So everything that we see in that video, just the clip that you saw and the entire clip is, is you see a, a very evangelical funeral, of not unlike what maybe you've experienced with the exception of being in a large cathedral. I want to tell you about the man who's being laid the rest there. He died in 2018. And this man suffered his entire life with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. He was confined in a wheelchair for most of his life, but he was a brilliant scientist. As a matter of fact, he is one of the most brilliant scientists. If you talk to any uh, professors or uh, people who are into astrology and and trying to find out the origins of the universe, this man's name is going to come up. Wrote a lot of books, did a lot of speaking at a lot of different universities, and was very revered within the science community. He wrote a book in 1988. And I've actually tried to read a little of this book, but it's so far over my head, I don't even know what the guy's saying. But the title of the book is In a Brief History of Time. And this is a quote from that book. The author says this, if we do discover a complete theory, it should be in time understandable and a broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all, as philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find an answer to that, it would be a triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. This scientist who was being laid to rest, he spent his entire life studying really two aspects of science. And they're going to sound a little odd, but this scientist thought that he could find how the universe came to be by studying two areas of science. One, black holes out in outer space. So out in outer space, there's these black holes, there's not a lot known about them, and he thought that that those black holes had something to do with how the universe came to be. The other thing that he studied in depth was gravity. And those two things, he spent his entire life trying to discern where the universe come from, and no doubt, in his heart, he was trying to also discern what his purpose was. Because as I told you last week, every human being is asking some of the same questions. Listen to what he said in an interview in 2014, talking about his goal in life. He says, quote, my goal was simple. It is a complete understanding of the universe, why it is as it is, and why it exists at all. He put his faith in science, and he believed that science had the ability to answer all of his questions. The other thing you need to know about this scientist is that not only did he suffer a tremendous amount, and he, he outlived anyone's expectations because when he was diagnosed with ALS, they gave him two years. But he ended up living, I think, another 30-some years, which is unheard of for the disease that he had, but he spent his entire life in a wheelchair. He spent his entire life, the latter part of his life especially, he couldn't speak, so he had to use a computer to be able to talk. Of course, I'm talking none other than Dr. Stephen Hawking. If you remember seeing the pictures of him, him being drawn up in that wheelchair, and he would speak to large groups of people, and it would be a computer voice as he would point a pointer towards words on a screen, and the computer would voice for him. Well, in 2016, he got very, very sick in Switzerland while he was over there speaking about the origins of the universe, and he almost died. He got an infection in his lungs, and he almost died. And right after he gets out of the hospital... 
uh, an interviewer wants to ask him some questions. I, I wonder if this interviewer wasn't thinking, did that near-death experience change any of your perspective about what you believe? After he had just gotten out of the hospital, <clears throat> this interviewer was talking to him, and this is what he said, and this is in 2016. Quote, I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. End quote. This brilliant man put all of his faith in science. And all the way up to the end of his life, he was still seeking answers to some of life's biggest questions. And no matter how far he looked out into the universe with a telescope, or no matter how minute he looked through a microscope at cells and DNA, his conclusion was, is that we are all a big cosmic accident. That there is no God in control, there is no God who creates, there is no God who we're accountable to, and therefore, your life consists of birth, school, working a job, maybe having a family, retiring, dying, and going into a cold, empty grave. That there is no you that's going to live beyond that grave. So this man ends his life, his life ends with the idea that there is no God, there is no afterlife. Jesus Christ, if he existed at all, has no impact on your life whatsoever. So here is the great irony in what you just saw on that video. His ashes are being laid to rest in a cathedral while a priest speaks over him the words of Jesus Christ, the words resurrection, the words of God the Father, while the man that they are putting in that in that hole in the ground, had no belief whatsoever in anything that they're saying. Is that an incredibly ironic? I don't know if you caught it in the video, but there was a moment there where the grandson, after he had placed the little artifact down in the, in the place where they were going to cover it over with concrete, there was a moment where he looks at his dad. And you can see his eyes. He looks at his dad and he's like, what's going on here? I'll tell you why I think. We, I don't know. I'm just speculating here. That grandson knew exactly what his grandfather believed. And in that moment, there's a priest standing next to that grandson talking about God and talking about resurrection and talking about Jesus. And I have to wonder if in that moment, that grandson picks up on the irony of that moment, that here's a guy we're laying to rest who believed none of this, and yet here we are going through the motions as though he did. I've had families ask me to do exactly the same thing. I've had families ask me in the death of a loved one, Someone who I knew, who had no belief in God, no belief in Christ, never believed anything about the afterlife, want me to stand in front of a congregation and say that they're in heaven, and I, I can't do that. I can't do that. What I want you to see in this is that here's a brilliant man. And quite frankly, depending on who you talk to, says this is one of the most brilliant men who lived in our lifetimes. And this man spent his life putting his faith in something that ultimately failed him. And the reality is, is that every person in this room and every person watching online from their homes, every one of you put your faith in something. The question is, is it going to fail you? The question is, is when it all comes down to that moment, your moment, that you're going to leave this planet, is what you've put faith in, is it going to preserve you or is it going to fail you? Jesus as he's focused on the cross, as his hour has come, as he's described it in John's gospel, he only has a few hours left with the 11 that are left. Remember, Judas has left now. He's left the upper room. It's just Jesus and the 11. And Jesus only has a few hours. So these are Jesus' last words to his disciples. And we call this the farewell discourses from chapter 13 to chapter 17. So in Jesus' last words, what is he going to say to these men. Well, these men are already anxious. They're already a little upset. They're beginning to realize that what they expect of Jesus is not going to play itself out. He's not going to be a king who goes into Israel and takes the throne, kicks the Romans out. He's, he's, he, keeps seem, he seems to be focused on this idea that he's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to die. And Jesus has even said specifically how he's going to die. He's going to be hung for all people to see. 
And then in the upper room, he tells them, I'm going away and you can't follow me. They've been following him for three and a half years, and now Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow me right now. And in John 14, opening this up, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Yes, where I'm going right now, you can't follow, but later on you will. But, but while we are apart, while I am there and you are here, I'm going to be preparing a place for you. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to receive you unto myself that, that where I am, we can be back together and we will never be separated again. But between now and then, I have a job to do and you have a job to do. Jesus has spent a lot of time with these men for the whole purpose of them placing their faith in him. Now, there's been some great moments where these men look at Jesus and go, yep, you're the Messiah. But even now, they're still wrestling with who Jesus really is. And the conversation that's going to happen in this upper room is just astounding. What we're going to find in the text today as we walk through it is, first of all, we want to understand where you're putting faith. And I want to define for you, as Jesus defines for these men, what authentic faith looks like. Authentic faith in something greater than yourself. So let's pick it up in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. If you want to know why Philip asked that question, back up in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus, after saying to his men, look, there is no other way into the kingdom. There is no other way to be right with God except through me. That is a huge statement. Jesus says, I am the way. In other words, I am the path to be reconciled with your creator, to be right with him. Not only that, he says, I am the truth. In other words, it's not that I'm just speaking the truth. I am the truth incarnate. I'm the truth with flesh on. The word logos is this Greek word that talks about Jesus being the word. John opens his gospel with that very phrase. Jesus says, I'm not just someone who knows the truth. I am the very truth alive in front of you. And then he says, I am the way. In other words, if you're looking for the way, I am the only way. The only way to be right with the Father. And then he says this, no one comes to the Father except through me. No other religion. We live in a time where, and we hear it all the time, that all faiths are valid. And where, no matter where you put your faith, whether that's in Muhammad, or whether that's in money, or whether that's in power, listen, all faiths lead to some kind of utopia. That's one of the biggest lies that has ever been perpetrated on the human race. Because Jesus clears it up right here, and not only is he going to clear it up with his words, he's going to back it up with his actions. Because just in a few days, this man's going to be graveyard dead, and this man is going to raise three days later. He said he would do it, he predicted it, and it's going to happen. And Jesus looks at his men and says to them, now listen, if you have known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, for you have seen him. And Philip goes, whoa, wait a minute. At what point have we seen the father? Now, Jewish men, as all these 11 men are, they've read the Old Testament. They know what, they, they've been taught this since they were kids. They've taught these, these big stories in the Old Testament where people asked to see God. Moses asked to see God. I mean, think about it. What a, what a monumental moment that you could see God. So Philip hears Jesus say, hey, you've seen the Father. Jesus, uh, Philip's a little confused by that. He can't help himself, so he asks a question. Can you show us the Father? If you'll, if you'll just show us the Father, look at this last race. It is enough for us. Philip says, if you'll just show us the Father, if, if God will just walk in the room, Jesus, we know you're special. We know you're powerful. But really, what we really want to see is God the Father. And if he'll just show up in the room, then, hey, we're all in. We'll be satisfied. That's what that is enough for us means. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Man, that had to sting. <laughs> that had to hurt. I don't, think, I don't think Philip's getting the response he was thinking he was going to get. Jesus says, you, you've been with me for almost three and a half years. You've seen the miracles. Hey, hey Philip, you, you were there. You were there when I turned the loaves and the fish into enough to feed 10,000 people. You were there. Hey, hey, Philip, you were there in Lazarus' tomb when I said just a few words and, and Lazarus walked out alive. You were there. Not only that, uh, Philip, you've seen me teach. You've seen me love. You've seen me... You see me heal blind people. You've seen me give the deaf back their hearing. You've seen me 
raise lame people back to their feet. And yet here we are in this upper room, and, and, and Philip, you're asking a preschool question on graduation day. Philip, we've already covered this. Not only in my words, but in my actions. And you're asking a question that's meant for a preschooler, and you're getting ready to graduate and go out and fulfill the mission. Wow, what bad timing. But what a profound question. Because Jesus answers it as clearly as anywhere you'll find in Scripture as to who he is. And not only that, he's going to answer it so clearly that it's going to give us insight into this incredible, amazing, and at times confusing notion of something called the Godhead Trinity, Trinitarian theology that says God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three equal, all three in oneness, but yet three distinct entities within the Godhead Trinity. It's crazy. This has been debated all down through history, and, and the thing about the Trinity is, is anytime I begin to, to wrestle with it, I always end up going in circles. So yes, Jesus is unique, but yet he is the Father. The Holy Spirit, he's unique and got a unique ministry, but yes, he is equal to the Father, and he's equal to Jesus, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are equal to the Father. You see where I'm going here? Ooh, it gets deep fast, doesn't it? Jesus says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Listen, folks, I, you know, I don't know what background you're coming from, and, and I, know, I know you've had folks knock on your door from, uh, from other religions, and, and they will argue with you about that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was some kind of just really great teacher who had some power, but he, but he was not God. He, we, we don't believe in some kind of trinity. We don't believe that God and Jesus are equal. We, there's all kinds of cults in our community who believe that. But can we all just agree for just a moment? That Jesus is saying something very profound here. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Does this sound to you like that Jesus is saying that he's God? Does that sound pretty reasonable? Yes. That's exactly what he's saying. So just make sure you know all the cults who are claiming otherwise are lying to you and lying to themselves. Jesus, as clearly as he could, says right here, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know how the Father loves people? Look at how I love people. Philip, you, you want to know the, the power that God has? Well, look at the power that I have. You want to see the mercy of God? Then just see, just show, just look at how I've lived my life and how I've been merciful to people. Philip, all that you need to know about God is staring you right in the face. You don't have to have some light from heaven. Jesus is right in front of him, and he's saying to Philip, Philip, you've seen the Father. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. There is this incredible, beautiful, partnership is not the right word, this union of Father and Son and Holy Spirit where they are absolutely one. But yet, they're separate and have a role to play in God's kingdom. The words that I say to you, and I don't speak of my own authority. Look at what he says here, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So the first, the first mark of authentic faith is believing Jesus. Now, oftentimes we say you need to believe in Jesus. We had, we had some conversations yesterday with people on the square about believing in Jesus. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 11. He says, Philip, you need to believe me. While on the one hand, yes, believing in Jesus, believing in who he is, is absolutely valid. But notice here, Jesus says to Philip, Philip, you need to believe me. In other words, Philip, believe what I'm saying to you right now, that authentic faith believes not only in Jesus, in the works that he's done, but also believes in the words that he's spoken. So Jesus taught a whole lot through his three years of ministry about the afterlife, he spoke about heaven, he spoke about end times, he spoke about all kinds of things. Now, on the one hand, we could approach Jesus and say, okay, he's just one more voice among many religious voices in the world that have an opinion about the afterlife. The problem, if you take that position, here's the problem with that, 
if we don't have a crucifixion and a resurrection, then yes, Jesus is just one more voice among a whole bunch of voices saying some religious things. He did some pretty good works. He loved people, and maybe we need to follow his model of love. But, but without a crucifixion, without a resurrection, then yeah, Jesus is just one more voice among a whole bunch of voices. But let me tell you, we have a crucifixion that is historically documented, and we have an empty tomb that is empty to this day, which tells us something about this man named Jesus. He's more than just a good teacher. He is God in the flesh, able to not only predict his death and his resurrection, but fulfill it. You got anybody else you can point to out there in religiosity that can pull that off? No one else. So Jesus says to Philip, Philip, believe me. You see, these 11, and eventually the 120, it is completely possible that they may put their faith somewhere else. It is completely possible that you know a whole lot of facts about Jesus. It is completely possible that you know some Bible verses. You, you may even celebrate Easter. And it is entirely possible for you to have some facts in your head about Jesus, but never have been transformed in your heart by the resurrected king. Is it possible to live your life knowing some things about Jesus, but never being changed by it? Yes. Billy Graham said, gosh, back in the 80s, he said that he believed that 80% of the church was lost. I think he's speaking to the reality that we can have facts about Jesus, but never a transformation of our life. Folks, that's a dangerous place to be. Because you've got just enough religion, just enough facts to inoculate you from the reality that you're going to be separated from him for one day. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He says there's going to be people who stand before him who are going to say, I expect to be into heaven. I be ex I'm expected to let the gates wide open and let me in because I did all these great things. You see, they had a lot of facts about Jesus, but Jesus is going to look at him and say, depart me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. How could that be? Because there's going to be people who knew facts about Jesus, but never had their life transformed by expressing faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe that describes you. Believing what Jesus says, the signs and miracles that he did, did points to the reality of who he is. So authentic faith is believing Jesus, but also authentic faith leads to greater works. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, I'm sorry, back up verse 12. I jumped it. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Well, that's pretty amazing in and of itself, but look at this next phrase. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Well, we got to ask a question here what Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus did some pretty incredible works. Let's just take Lazarus being raised from the tomb. That's a pretty incredible work. Does Jesus mean that these 11, and by, by default, the New Testament church is going to spring out of that Pentecost moment in Acts 1, which then includes all of us who are followers of Jesus. Does this mean we're going to go out and raise people back from the dead and do it even more often than Jesus did? Is that what he means? Is it means that we're going to do greater works? We're going to heal more people. We're going to cast out more devils, demons, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be able to do greater works in that frame of mind. Now that's what not Jesus is. Jesus is not talking about greater in power. What he's talking about is greater in impact. Think about this. Jesus spent his entire ministry in one little strip of land. His entire ministry, the furthest he ever went north from Jerusalem was Caesarea Philippi, and that's not that very far away. He didn't really go very far south past Jerusalem. He didn't go all over uh, the, 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 the land of Israel. He, he stayed in one little strip of land, and he did all of his ministry there, and he only ministered for three and a half years. He only called 12 people to walk with him intimately. Even though he had thousands of people that were gathering, Jesus seemed to, every time the crowds got big, he would pull back and focus on the 12. It's almost as though Jesus was intently focused on the 12 and this little strip of land. But then Jesus says to his disciples that they're going to go and they're going to enter a harvest that is wide. And that harvest means beyond just Jerusalem. Well, in the book of Acts, we see these men empowered with the Holy Spirit spill out of the upper room they reach people in Jerusalem, and, and then eventually, after about five or six years, Stephen is put to death, and the church then spreads beyond the walls of Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea. 
And then eventually Paul comes on the scene and he takes the gospel all across Asia Minor and all the way to Rome. Had intentions of going all the way to Spain. And from that place, the gospel begins to spread all over the world. In other words, what Jesus is talking about, that in the New Testament church, empowered with the Holy Spirit, they're going to do greater works, greater in impact, greater in influence, greater all over the world, that there are places all over the world that are hearing the gospel today because of what Jesus said right here. There are still people and groups all over the planet that are unreached, that have never heard the name of Christ, and there are people being prepared in seminaries and in churches to be sent into those unreached people groups even as we speak. Greater works, because Jesus' ministry is going to continue. Jesus' ministry is going to continue in every one of his followers. One of the things that we're stressing the disciples out is that how are we going to continue to do this ministry without Jesus being with us? Jesus says to them, I'm going to give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you to do what I've called you to do. So listen, guys, it's not about you becoming more proficient. It's not about you coming up with some kind of grand scheme. It's simply about you being obedient to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to do those greater works through you. I'm going to be working through you. Yesterday on the square downtown, Jesus was working through his people and the person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of each one of you who are serving down there, who follows Jesus. Jesus was working through you. You've often heard it said that the church is the the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, that's a, a theologically way of saying or an easy way of saying that the Lord continues his ministry. His ministry didn't end when he ascended back to the Father. His ministry continues in you. Every smile, every time you bring his name up, every time you love Every time you give, hands and feet of Jesus in the world. I heard this story about a, a World War II sub. And they're on this sub and they're out in the middle of, of the Pacific. And one of the sailors on that sub comes down with appendicitis. And it just so happened that they didn't have a doctor on board. And they are a long way from land, and because of their deployment and because of what was going on in World War II, they couldn't leave their their mission. They had to stay out in the Pacific. So this sailor keeps getting worse and worse. His temperature's up to 106, and, and the person they have on board is simply a pharmacist. But this pharmacist recognizes all the symptoms and recognizes that he's got appendicitis, and if that appendix doesn't come out, this guy's gonna die. So the the pharmacist comes up with an idea. He says, you know, when I was in school, I saw, I witnessed, I was was a witness in a a surgical room of some some doctors take a guy's appendix out and, and do the surgery. So I think I can do it. Now, the equivalent of that would be, hey, I think I can take your appendix out. I just watched a YouTube video, right? How comfortable would you feel about that? Well, this pharmacist had seen this particular surgery. He feels like he can do it, and the guy's going to die if they don't do something. The only problem is they don't have a a surgical room. They don't have, I mean, it's on a sub, very tight space. So they've got this one little small cabin. They didn't have anything but one scalpel, and it was broken. They didn't have any of the normal surgical tools that you would need to do this kind of surgery. So this pharmacist comes up and says, okay, what do we have? So they took spoons, and they bent spoons, and we're going to use the spoons as a, for lack of, to not be too graphic, to open up the cavity to get to his appendix. They're going to use a broken scalpel to cut him open. They had some alcohol, drinking alcohol, so they're going to get him pretty well lit. Uh, And then they've had some local antiseptic, and they're boiling water. This is all they've got. So they put him in this little cabin, and I guess they give him a towel to bite down on, and they cut him open, and this pharmacist opens him up, finds the appendix, cuts it, clamps it off, takes it out, sews the guy up. Two and a half hours later, they're done. Four days later, the guy's already back at his post, doing fine. What an amazing thing, that a pharmacist who's never done any kind of surgery simply saw how to do the surgery was able to form it. The reason this story is amazing is because you have a guy here who was untrained to do what he did. You know why? Because the influence of what he saw with those surgeons influenced him enough to be able to do an incredible, powerful work. Well, get this. 
Jesus could call people out of the grave. Jesus could heal people. I mean, Jesus could do amazing things. But then Jesus says, I'm going to do some greater works through you. And I can tell you that if the surgeon had been on board that day, we would not be talking about this story. This story wouldn't even be, well, important. Sure, a surgeon can do it. Sure, a surgeon can take an appendix out. But when somebody who doesn't know what they're doing who trusts in something that they saw and experienced and allows that training or that experience to empower them to do something amazing, we're all blown away by it. That's exactly what Jesus says to you when he says, you're going to do greater things. But Jesus goes even further. The Godhead Trinity lives inside of you as a follower of Jesus. And you're going to do greater works. Greater works because that's what the kingdom calls us to do in Great Commission work. The third thing I want you to see is, is right here in this text, I talked about it earlier, about asking in God's name. Look at verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, in my name, I will do it. That verse has been abused, uh, taken out of context, and has been said to mean that, that God owes you something. That, that if you want a, a million dollars in the bank, all you have to do is proclaim it. Name it and claim it. And that God is somehow obligated to give you that, even though God may know that that's going to bring great harm in your life. And so this idea of the prosperity preaching or prosperity gospel is the idea that, that God is some kind of big Santa Claus up in heaven, and you can ask him for whatever you want, and he's obligated to give it to you, whether it's in his will, whether it's within the confines of his word, whether it honors him or not, that he's obligated to give you. There are people preaching this mess, and there are people who believe it right here in this community. I think there are two extremes when we read a text like this that we can gravitate towards, and I think both are equally dangerous. On the one hand is what I just described. Jesus, the Godhead Trinity, is Santa Claus. Or, or they are a slot machine. You put some stuff in, pull the handle, and it's obligated to give you a big payout. That's dangerous. But equally dangerous, and I've seen this just as prevalent, is we don't ask God for anything. We, we simply don't even ask him for the desires of our heart. We don't even ask him. Even times when we're asking, and when, there's no doubt that what you're asking him for is probably not best for you, but ask him anyway. But make sure you understand that God is not obligated to give you something that's going to bring harm into your life or bring reproach upon him. Jesus says, you pray and you ask in what? In my name, aligned with my will. So authentic faith realizes that prayer is aligning our heart with the heart of the Father. Why do we pray? We pray to hear the voice of God. We pray because we want to commune with him but the reason we pray is for God to align our hearts to his will. That event we did yesterday on the square, or the circle, whatever you want to call it, it looks like a circle rather than a square, but nonetheless, I'd prayed about that for months. I knew that God had called us to go down there. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't know what the fruit was going to be. I didn't even know if God was going to bring any people to us. I just knew that we had to be down there and we had to do what we did yesterday and that God was going to take care of the rest of it, and he did. And then when I looked out among you guys, there was nobody who walked across that, that square that didn't get contacted or loved or a smile from the, well, those of you who served down there. I'm very proud of you for doing that. What, what Jesus is saying here is not some kind of magical formula. It's simply... The opportunity to ask. Now, why is Jesus saying this right here? Because imagine these 11 men. Jesus is going back to the Father. Don't you imagine they've got some questions? Don't you imagine they're thinking, well, what's next? What are we going to do? That's going to get even worse after they see Jesus down on a cross. But Jesus says to him, to them, ask. Ask me for anything. There's been times in my life I've asked God for things that were certainly not in his will, and God said no. Because God's not obligated to give me that. But here Jesus says to these men, ask. Whatever you preach your faith in, whatever, wherever you have your faith, that's what you're running to 
to have things in your life fixed, right? Well, whatever. For, for Stephen Hawking, you know what he ran to? He ran to science. For some of you, you're running to your money. For some of you, you're running to relationships. For some of you, you're running to, to Netflix to simply tune out of the world. I, I just need to check out from the world, so I'm going to sit here. I'm going to watch the screen, even though I have no idea what it is and don't really care anything about it but I need to check out from the world. So whatever you have your faith in, you run to that hoping that it's going to answer the questions, hoping that it's going to give you what you desire. And Jesus says, why don't you come to me with that? Authentic faith aligns our heart with his through prayer. Look at this next part in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I would love to tell you there's some gray area right there. I would love to tell you that there's something behind the text in the Greek language that releases us from this responsibility. But here's the thing. Authentic faith always, 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 always is affirmed by obedience. Authentic faith is clarified by the works that you do. So the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Bible knows nothing of someone who says they follow Jesus but has no works to back that up at all. That there are things in your life that are tangible, that says that you've been changed by the king. He says here that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you follow me, my commandments are going to be important to you. Not because you're trying to earn something, but because of worship and honor for me, that you're going to follow me and you're going to keep my commandments, and that authentic faith always works itself out in obedience. Whatever you're worshiping, that's what's dictating your life. For Stephen Hawking, his whole life was spent in laboratories and college campuses seeking the answer to this question. Where did we all come from? Why are we here? And I think this other question had to be profound in his mind because when we suffer, and he certainly suffered physically for a large portion of his life, he had to have people take care of him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, imagine how hard it would be to have that kind of brilliance but yet you can't feed yourself, you can't bathe yourself. And I don't know this for certain because I don't know if he, read, if he wrote about it anywhere, but, but wouldn't you imagine that Stephen Hawking in the center of his life, in the center of his heart, is asking the question, why me? Why did the universe deal me such a bad hand? Why did the universe give me ALS? And, and why... Do I have to suffer the way that I do? And what is the purpose in suffering? Those are huge life questions. And the reality is, he ran to science over and over and over again, and that man died, having come in very close to God and looking at his creation, yet denying that he existed, and never coming to a conclusion of what life is really about. I meet people like that all the time. And they're running to a myriad of things trying to get some answers to life. And if you run towards them long enough, time runs out. And then will that thing that you have your faith in, will it be able to carry you through when the end comes? Authentic faith is always affirmed through obedience. And then finally, authentic faith onboards the Holy Spirit into our life. Look at verse 16, and I will, fall, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice that word helper, advocate, someone who is going to empower you, and he's going to be with you forever, verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in, Look, be in you. Look at verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus doesn't look at his men and go, Good luck with that. Hey, you need to figure out some things and hope this all works out. I'm going back to the Father. Good luck. Oh, by the way, you've got this commission that says make disciples who make disciples and take that all over the world. Good luck with that. Come up with some ideas. You guys will work it out. Good luck. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's going to live inside of you. He's going to empower you and give you the ability to accomplish the mission that I've given you. Those greater works that he talked about. So authentic faith, when you put faith in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. 
So the idea that we need something else to accomplish the mission is simply a lie. We've got all that we need. You have everything that you need. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have everything that you need inside of you to fulfill what God has called you to do. Completely and totally. A.W. Tozer was a, a great theologian, and he wrote this. He said, quote, if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do, or 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. Let me, let me say that again. Tozer said that if, if the Holy Spirit were to be taken out of the local church today, 95% of what we're doing would just simply go on and no one would know the difference. So Tozer says that there is this, this methodology that the church is using that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, that's not been bathed in prayer and, and nothing that's sought God out, sought God's direction in His will, that we're simply going through the motions and we've been doing it so long that if the Holy Spirit was no part of it at all, we'd never know the difference. And church would not look any different. Then he goes on to say this. He says, however, if the Holy Spirit had withdrawn, been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. As you're following Jesus, you have everything that you need for your marriage, your parenting. I'm here to help you. The church is here to walk alongside you, help you to, to kind of embrace God's word and understand it, how to live that out. That's what we're here to do. But ultimately, you have what you need. So it's not trying to get more of something. It's about yielding to what's already there. That's why Jesus is having this conversation with these 11 men. Because in a very short period of time, they're going to go through the worst period of time in their life. That's going to turn out to one of the greatest moments of their life. That's going to turn into the greatest mission of their life. And if they're not focused, if they get distracted, if they put their faith in lesser things, if they forget to pray, if they forget to, to, to utilize the Holy Spirit to be yielded to Him, this thing's going to be an epic failure. An epic failure. How in the world are these 11 men, fishermen, tax collectors, how in the world are these 11 men going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world? when they have never left and never lived anywhere other than this little strip of land that they've grown up in? How in the world is Jesus going to take a bunch of broken men and send them out on a mission that, quite frankly, is way bigger than them and is still bigger than us? How is he going to do that? Well, he says, I'm going to give you an advocate and helper. He's going to be with you forever. It's not about getting more of him. At the moment you put your faith in him, you got everything that is the Holy Spirit. The challenge now is, is that we live a life fully yielded to him. Let me be very clear. My concern is, is that some of you have a lot of facts about Jesus. You've grown up at church, went to Bible school, and down through your walk of life, you gained a lot of information about Jesus. But that information while it has filled your mind, has never changed your heart. What's the difference? The difference is faith, authentic faith. Faith taking Jesus for who he is, believing not only in Jesus, but believing what he says. Believing in the works he did and the words that he spoke. Enough to where you say, I'm surrendering my life because obviously there's no way that I'm ever going to find the meaning of life apart from him. So I'm going to abandon all that. I don't understand it all but I'm following him. Have you ever done that? Or have you just got to the place where you're just satisfied with a worship service every so often, memorizing a few facts, and you're putting your faith on religion rather than Jesus? It's a dangerous place, folks. For some of you, you've, you've had a transformed life. There was a point along your journey that Jesus changed your life, but down through the years, time, trouble, pain, heartache, a lack of whatever, you begin to put your faith somewhere else. Maybe it's the government. The government's going to fix my problems. The government, it's going to, look, it, who I vote for is going to fix me and fix all my problems. How's that working out for you? I think if you'll take an inventory, you'll find out that, that you may be placing your faith in something that can never deliver. And Philip in the room with Jesus, who's seen all and heard all that Jesus did, 
looks at Jesus with a heart filled with doubt. You know when doubt becomes dangerous? Doubt is dangerous when you turn it inward. Take the doubts that you've got about Jesus and put words to them. I'll be glad to talk with you about it. But if you've got some doubts or you've got your faith in something else, it's time to consider Jesus. It's time to believe him, not even in him, not only in him, but believe Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. Lord, we love you. Your words are true, always, always true. True in every circumstance, true in every situation, true in every culture. Our world is telling us that what we believe in is antiquated. It's old school. It's old world. We need to leave it behind because it no longer has any power or influence. We've, we've become smarter. We've become educated now. And in our education and in all of our smarts, Father, our world is saying that because of our professors and our colleges and our higher learning that we no longer need you. So, Father, we shouldn't be surprised when our world is in such a mess. Marriage is falling apart. Homes falling apart. People don't even know who they are. They're on identity. You've created them to be. Father, our world is putting their faith in places that can never deliver. It will never bring them peace. And they'll never find purpose. Father, I believe there's people here this morning that are struggling with that exact same thing. So, Father, in this moment as we worship together, I, I pray that you would help them to see the true nature of their own heart. That we would see us the way you see us. Father, that we would respond accordingly put our faith where it matters in you and you alone Father we love you we thank you for the goodness we thank you Father that your grace is even available to us because we didn't deserve it have your will and your way this in this moment in this service and even beyond this service as we leave that you would continue to bring conviction and clarity in the minds and hearts of the people here and those watching online we ask it in Jesus name Amen thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church.